0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 16, and we are continuing to work our way through this incredible book, which again is very much a neglected book, a ridiculed book. And I think one of the reasons why the church, the body of Christ, is in such a poor state is because they have neglected the last book of the Bible, much like they have with the first book of the Bible. So I'm going to continue to work my way through this incredible book coming from it from a futurist perspective. And i make the case one more time, if I may, that for those which think that, for example, we are living through the generation from Revelation 1 to 22, then where would we be? Could we say that we are around, what, Revelation 12, 13, 14, 15? And if that is the case, referred to as the historical view which the SDA holds to, then who are the two witnesses? Who is the false prophet? Who is the Antichrist? How about the image of the Antichrist? What about the third temple? How about the mark of the beast? It's clear to me that such material from Revelation is still to occur. And that's why I make the case time after time, week after week, that what we are reading is still to occur, the worst is yet to come. And yet for, uh, for those of us which are saved, the best is yet to come. Revelation 16, Revelation 16. Let's begin today, if we may, in verse 1. And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways, and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. So the Lord has removed two witnesses by now. He has removed the 144,000 by now. And he has decided to send an angel chapter 14 to preach to those on the earth but normally angels are not sent to preach the gospel per se if you think about that account back in Acts chapter 10 concerning Cornelius he would see an angel and yet the angel didn't witness to him the angel sent for Simon Peter so when we think about Muhammad for example meeting Gabriel or so we are told or Joseph Smith meeting Moroni or so we are told And receiving some kind of message from such angels, we know straight away that we are dealing with something that is not of the Lord. Preaching the gospel comes from the mouths of men. Women too, to some extent, but mainly men. Angels don't preach the gospel. So what we are reading about today is very much the Lord's final throw of the dice. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways. And pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. God is angry with the wicked every day. He hates all workers of iniquity. And yet you don't hear this preached. And if you attempt to preach such a message, you are shut down. People love this idea that God is love, which course he is. And that he's okay with your lifestyle, which he's not. He's holy and he's also just. But here this voice comes from the temple. Heaven of course not on the earth. To the seven angels. Literal seven angels. You've got seven churches. Seven spirits. Seven trumpets. Seven angels to go their way. And pour out the vials of the wrath of God. Almighty God. Upon the earth. And people say well the church is going to go through the tribulation. If that were possible. We would be consumed. Because we know from the uh, book. Of Jeremiah chapter 17, how the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Don't kid me. I know that if I was to be put in such a situation, I wouldn't last five minutes. And that's why the Lord would pick 144,000 Jewish male virgins to preach the gospel, much like the Lord would choose 12 apostles to preach the gospel the first time around. Salvation is of the Jews. But Christians, for the most part, are a great disappointment to the Lord. But here, it's judgment time. Here, it's punishment. The Lord has sat back for centuries. And now he's going to let rip, as they say. And he will use seven angels with vials, which could be a throwback to the plagues, to punish those that on the earth. Look at verse 2, please, from chapter 16. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men, which are the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. Women as well, and probably children to some extent. And here the angel has poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore. A painful sore, a sense of uh, unimaginable pain, some kind of leprosy perhaps, some kind of legion Uh, Perhaps some have suggested it's a type of HIV. It's a mark of some kind. You think of the mark of Cain back in Genesis. And here such people are going to be struck down with some kind of a sore like Job. Great pain. Why? Because they have taken the mark of the beast. And they've worshipped his image. Again, this is a point of no return. From chapter 14, as far as I can ascertain, there are no more... People getting saved. We are right at the end of the tribulation. And here men and women and children of course. Those that are old enough to know right from wrong. And have taken the mark of the beast. Are going to be punished. They are going to be screaming in pain. This is a terrible picture of an event. Which again is still yet to come. And if you don't believe me. Look back on history. And try and find anywhere any time, Where such a thing happened. Three. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea. And it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Animal life, of course, will die in the sea. And it's quite possible as well that during the tribulation, or just before the tribulation, that there will be people with enough money to perhaps even live under the sea. That's been suggested by some people. In fact, it uh, would fall to science fiction writers at the turn of the year. the middle of the 20th century that wrote about this that people would be living under the sea or on the sea and it's not too difficult to imagine there are people around the world that live on their own private islands people like to go scuba diving people like to go deep uh, sea fishing diving they like to you know spend a lot of time on the water so it's quite possible that people are going to be fleeing to the sea to escape the antichrist but here we're This second angel has poured out his vial upon the sea. Could be oceans as well. This goes back to Mark 16. Whatever you drink won't kill you. Because the waters are going to be contaminated. The waters are going to be poisoned. Which again is a throwback to Moses and Pharaoh. Moses would come the first time. Clash with Pharaoh. A great type of the Antichrist. And decimate Egypt. Destroy Egypt. And every time I read that account from the book of Exodus and I read Pharaoh's generals pleading with him to let the children of Israel go, I think of Berlin 1945. I think of the generals surrounding Hitler. They knew that the war was over and they were pleading with him to do a deal with the Allies because they thought that if the Russians arrived, which they would and they did. It would be far worse for them. And Hitler lost his mind, refused to surrender. And Pharaoh lost his mind and refused to surrender. So here, everything that is living in the sea, uh, oceans as well, no doubt, are going to die. Terrible picture. Four. And a third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. You can't miss it, can you? The river Nile is turned into blood. When Christ came the first time. He would turn water into wine. If you speak to a Catholic. Or if you go to a Catholic church. Or if you partake of the Mass. They believe that the wine becomes blood. And when a Catholic drinks from the chalice. They are drinking the blood of Christ. Which if that were the case. If that literally is what happens. They would be guilty of cannibalism. Which is condemned in scripture. And that too will be turned back on their heads. They worship the chalice. That's why Catholics go down their knees when the priest holds up the Eucharist. And if you go into a Catholic church, they have a tabernacle and if the candle is lit, it is claimed by the Catholic church that the Holy Spirit is in such a church. Of course, as Bible believers, the Holy Spirit lives within us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So here you got rivers, you've got fountains, seas being contaminated with blood. Awful picture, and it's still to occur. Verse 5 And heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged us. Lord, you're doing a great thing. Lord, what you are doing is wonderful. Lord, we love you. And as David would say, I count the Lord's enemies as my enemies. And yet this is still to occur. It's going to be far worse than the great plague of London. It's going to be far worse than anything you've ever read about or heard about or watched on television or any movie that you've seen. This is still to occur and this angel is praising the Lord. Which takes me to a scenario that I have concerning the great white throne judgment. We know from scripture that we are going to be observers at the great white throne judgment. Daniel speaks about that and we as the redeemed, we as the church and also redeemed Israel are going to see the wicked dead being resurrected to be judged. And uh, I think, as one old preacher said, he will close his eyes when his unsaved family are summoned, resurrected from the pit of hell to be judged. But the point is this, we will be standing with the Lord, we will be observing what is about to occur, and we will concur with the Lord when he passes his ultimate and eternal sentence on such wicked people verse 6 please for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink for they are worthy that term again given them blood to drink now in the context this is literal blood for example a man will get up in the morning he will turn his tap on hoping to get water and blood will come out and he will have to drink it because he's got nothing else to drink a catholic goes to mass takes of the eucharist And he or she is drinking blood, or so they are led to believe. Now, of course, we know that such a belief is fanciful, it's blasphemous, it is anti-scriptural. But they believe it nevertheless. But here, people are going to be drinking literal blood to survive. You can't imagine it, can you? Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament prophets. Moses and Elijah, according to... uh, Chapter 11, which we looked at some weeks ago, are quite likely the two witnesses. And they were put to death. Also saints concerning tribulation saints. It could also be that this piece of scripture has some reference to the Antichrist. Mystery Babylon, chapter 17. Because the papacy, since its conception back in the 4th century, has killed millions of people. Far more than any other system on the face of the earth. I think only the atheist countries come anywhere near like Russia, China, Pol Pot and other awful parts of the world which follow the God of atheism and perhaps North Korea as well. For they have shed the blood, for they have spilt the blood, for they have caused the death, the martyrdom of saints and prophets, tribulation saints, not the church age. And thou hast given them blood to drink for they are worthy. In other words, they deserve it. They've got their comeuppance. There's a picture here of do what you have to do, Lord. They have kicked against you. They have rejected you for centuries. They've made fun of your book. They've made fun of your people. They have put your children to death. And therefore it's time to punish them. If you think of Jeremiah, here's a quick footnote for you. He was very angry back in the Old Testament. He was very angry that Israel were in such rebellion and he wanted the Lord to just destroy them all. bit like Jonah with that city of Nineveh. And the Lord had to uh, placate Jeremiah in a sense. Like he would do with uh, Jonah. He didn't want to destroy people per se. Christ would tell you that he didn't come to destroy men's lives. But to save them. And yet when you go to the book of Acts. And you read about Stephen for example. His moments from being martyred by Saul. Who would become Paul the Apostle. And he doesn't call on the Lord to punish his murderers. Which is what they were. He calls on them to be spared. He almost mimics the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Two dispensations. Jeremiah was angry. Like these sons of Zebedee. And yet Stephen. Post the cross is calling for clemency. Calling for mercy. But here it's too late. There's just no way. To reverse such a decline. Such people have been in rebellion for centuries and now they're going to get what they deserve. Terrible. And yet what else can you do with people? It's like if you are a judge and a lot of people come into your courtroom and they've been found guilty of first degree murder, rape, child abuse, who knows what else. What would you do with such people? What could you do with such people? You would have to sentence them accordingly. To do anything else would be a mistrial of justice. It would be a farce. It would be an abomination. Verse 7, please. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. True and righteous are thy judgments. It's impossible to conceive of the Lord doing anything wrong. If you have ever studied Christ, even if you are a non-believer, it's very difficult to find fault with his character, with the way that he spoke, how he conducted himself. And yet, if you look at Muhammad, for example, or Joseph Smith, for example, or even Charles Darwin, for example, or Karl Marx, for example, or anyone, you can find so many flaws and faults in their characters, chinks in their armour, and yet when you look at Christ, it's very difficult to really critique him, to really find fault with him, and of course he is faultless, he's flawless because he is the eternal son of God, so here this angel is praising the Lord for what he's about to do, he is concurring with the Lord because he knows that the Lord does what is right, and that's why it's Not always wise to criticize a scripture so quickly or to read accounts in scripture concerning the destruction of entire peoples because you don't know the whole story. And if you want to know what it's going to be like when Christ comes back to rule and reign, look at Joshua, look at David, look at Solomon. See how those men governed, how they led, how they operated. And you'll get some idea as to how it's going to be with Christ, on a literal throne, in a literal country, for a literal period of time, and I'm speaking about Jerusalem, of course, let's keep reading on from verse 8, please, and a fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, people pay good money to get a tan, people pay good money to go abroad, and sit on the beach, go for a swim, and it is fair to say that during the millennium, the power of the sun will be seven times its current strength, which could just be how it was pre the fall of man. But for now, if the sun was to be increased sevenfold, we would all fry. And as has been said before, if the sun was further away, we'd all freeze. That's how finely tuned this universe is. But here, this fourth angel has poured out his vial upon the sun. And power, authority was given unto him to scorch men with fire people are going to be burnt to a crisp during the tribulation now i don't mind a bit of sun but if it gets too hot i start to wilt i much rather uh, prefer the cold than the heat but here by verse 8 it's going to get hotter people are going to burn they're going to be drinking blood they're going to be on their knees wanting to take their own lives and yet the lord will not allow them to do such a cowardly thing people say is this what god's all about yes this is what god is all about i mean how much longer do you think he should sit back and wait and put up with people blaspheming him mocking him putting his children to death creating false religions he's going to roar like a lion and uh, when he does so look out verse nine please I remember scorched with great heat And blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. They repented not to give him glory. Men and women were scorched, burnt with great heat. And they repent. No, they don't. They blaspheme the name of God. They take his name in vain. They say, oh my, or they say Jesus, or they say Christ. They blaspheme his name. They do so because they hate him. And that was spoken about back in the book of Isaiah. He was a man despised, acquainted with grief, uh, ridiculed. Uh, We hid our faces from him. We didn't want to be identified with him. And yet, in spite of all that, it says he went to the cross despising the shame. And that's why it's important to remember that he's far more loving than we give him credit for. And at the same time, people need to realize that they are far more wicked than perhaps they want to accept. People like to think that they're not that bad. And men, women, those over the age of accountability, that took the mark of the beast, were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. He could have stopped it, but he won't. And they repented not to give him glory. Now you would have thought, surely, that people on the earth suffering in such a way, knowing that it's coming from heaven, would turn from their wickedness, right? No, they turn further from the Lord. And they embrace their sin even more. It almost pictures total depravity or total inability. Which incidentally is not a scriptural term. Man is wicked. There is no doubt about that. But he's not wicked in the sense that the Calvinists would have you believe. He knows the difference between right and wrong. And he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. So when the Lord pours out his fury on those on the earth. They don't turn to him. They turn further from him. So therefore, if you ever get criticised for preaching a negative message, quote-unquote, or turning people off the Lord, quote-unquote, that is actually impossible. Because people inherently don't want to receive this wonderful message. They want to reject it. They want to do their own thing. Look at verse 10, please. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Such a stubborn group of people. The children of Israel were referred to as being a stiff-necked people. Even saved people can be very stiff-necked, very stubborn, very rebellious. And that's why you have to understand that when a sinner gets saved, he is kept saved by grace. Because there is something in all of us which is inherently wicked. Go back to Jeremiah again. The heart is deceitful above all things. And I mean all things. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you're saved, your heart is desperately wicked. If you're unsaved, your heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. And yet people don't like to hear that. People hate the idea of being spoken about in such a negative way. And here, the seat of the beast, verse 10, could be Rome, could be Jerusalem, according to one commentary, could be Babylon being in Iraq, rebuilt, could be America as well, as some people would have you believe. And his kingdom was full of darkness, partly spiritual, and yet according to uh, Matthew 24, also partly literal as well. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. They are chewing. They are biting on their tongues with pain. They are in absolute agony. It's bad enough to go to the dentist. It's bad enough to go to a doctor's surgery. It's bad enough to sit in an interview room and be grilled by a group of interviewers. Those things are bad enough. But here, these people are screaming with pain because of the pain that God is inflicting on them. And again, they don't repent, they turn further from the Lord and blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. They continue down the road to oblivion. And I can't teach this any other way. It's a very depressing subject. It's a subject which, again, is neglected. People read this piece of scripture and they spiritualize it. But I can't get away from it. I think that what we are reading is just absolutely devastating. Keep your hand in Revelation 16 and go to Malachi. By the grace of God, I was able to finish the uh, scripture. I was able to uh, read every book in the Bible in uh, 27 days. And it was a great blessing for me. And I thank the Lord for sustaining me. And as I say, when I get a chance, I will... Return to studying the scripture to really get a blessing. Reading it is great, but studying it is something altogether different. Malachi, Malachi, go to chapter 4. This picture is the second coming. This picture is the Lord's return. Malachi 4, the last book of the Old Testament. Look at verse 1, please. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that to do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. You've got two things. You've got judgment, verse 1. You've got people being burnt to a crisp. And you've got the Lord still offering the hand of friendship the chance to be saved and yet as I say as far as I can see from chapter 14 onwards no one else gets saved so it goes back to the gospels how can you escape the damnation of hell uh you're not far from the kingdom of God the Lord continued to give those on the earth a chance to be saved even though he knew that they were never going to be saved so I can understand what's going on here judgment verse one and redemption possibly being offered in verse two and yet, I'm afraid to say it's too little too late. But here, the day cometh, feeding into the day of the Lord. And those that are on the earth are going to be a stubble, burnt as an oven. Why? Because they do wickedly. And that day shall come upon them, burn them up. Saith the Lord of hosts, So that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Go to Joel, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, another great Old Testament book. Speaking about the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Joel chapter 2, look at verse 1, please. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains a great people and a strong. They have not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Go back to Revelation chapter 16. Now the Old Testament prophets were shown the Lord's first coming and they were shown his second coming. What they were not shown was the church age. The church age is a mystery. It's a mystery that has only been revealed to those of us which are saved. All of the covenants that were given to the Jews, the Jews broke. And therefore the Lord said, well, I've sent you prophets. I've put you into captivity several times. I've allowed two Gentiles to destroy both your temples. And you would have thought that with such acts taking place, the Jews would start to examine themselves, would start to cry out to the Lord. That's not what happened. After the second temple went down, the Jews started to create their own religion. It was bad enough when Christ came the first time and he would clash with the Jews because they were very much following traditions going back to Babylon. And therefore, when the Lord came the first time, died on a cross and he gave the children of Israel a 40-year period of grace to put the house in order, as it were, they rejected it. They turned against it. And therefore, the Lord said, okay, fine, I will disperse you throughout the nations, which he did. And for the next 2,000 years, I will deal with the church, Gentiles, those that believe in my son. And that's where you get the term, the wandering Jew. So, Revelation 16, we've looked at the first 11 verses. And let's quickly read verse 12 and then close. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Euphrates being a rock. Some commentators believe that Babylon in Iraq is going to be rebuilt. I don't know about that. Some people think that Babylon is America, like New York, because New York comes to 666, as does Washington. I'm not sure about that either. Some people think that the beast, the seat, his throne, his uh, power base, if you will, is somehow tied in with Jerusalem. I'm not sure about that either. I will look at chapter 17 in the coming weeks. It has been historically taught that Babylon, harlot, so on and so forth, is Rome. But here you've got the sixth angel pouring out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. A little place, which is still in Iraq. We can't get around it, so let's leave it as it is. Why? And the water, or the reason for this, the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Kings, leaders from China, perhaps, Russia, perhaps, Japan, perhaps. They're going to march from the east to Jerusalem. And the river will be dried up. Now, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they went to the Red Sea. And the Lord would part the Red Sea. And that's a well-known account. And yet what isn't so well-known is when Joshua and the Levites also went through a particular sea. And the Lord would also uh, allow them to walk through water and there's one more account concerning uh, Elijah and Elisha but here the kings of the east are going to march they're going to march towards Jerusalem and they are going to be cut down and I will close there and next week return with some more information but just before I do sign out just turn if you will please to the gospel of John because some people think that Revelation is an awful book. that somehow a fringe book. Some of the early church leaders actually didn't like it being in the canon. And some of them didn't think it was even inspired. Very ignorant statement to make. And very arrogant statement to make as well. From John chapter 3. Which they don't reject. We read from verse 36 the following. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not, the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He is angry with you, and his anger abides upon you, if you're not saved. If you're saved, and you are sinning, then he will deal with you as a son. He will chastise you as a son. But if you're not saved, he will deal with you as a sinner. And he will chastise you, he will do what he has mentioned over in Revelation 16, if necessary. He will do whatever he has to do to get you to repent. And he would do so because he is almighty God. But the great theme from John 3.36, He that believeth, no works involved, on the Son, being Jesus, hath everlasting life. Present tense. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It starts in this lifetime. It continues during the first death, referred to as hell or Hades, Luke 16, 19 to 31, it continues for at least a thousand years during the millennium and then it goes on into eternity once you get to the great white throne judgments and you are called up from hell to be judged, to be uh, publicly shamed, spoken of as such back in the uh, book of Daniel and then you go off into the lake of fire where you burn forever. And when was the last time you heard such a message preached? So I will leave you there from Revelation chapter 16. And next week we'll pick it up from Revelation 16 verse 13.